0: Been working our way through a sermon series since January called Into the Mess. We've explored the stories of people who are experiencing significant crises and how Jesus walked right into that mess, bringing healing and new life, often in unexpected ways. And as we begin to transition into some of our more uh, traditional stories for Holy Week starting next week, this story is a fitting one to do that transition. In the Gospel of John, The raising of Lazarus, this story, this miracle, is the event that causes the religious leaders to want to kill Jesus. It is the thing, the pivotal moment, it is the catalyst to the cross. Jesus' increasingly dramatic demonstrations of power had become politically dangerous to maintaining that delicate relationship with the Jews' Roman oppressors. And in the verses right before today's passage begin, we read that Jesus had escaped arrest and was teaching by the River Jordan. Friends of Lazarus and his sisters Mary and Martha came to Jesus and told him that Lazarus, the one whom you love, was gravely ill. Their implied expectation was that Jesus would drop everything and hurry to the town of Bethany to heal his dear friend. After all, they'd seen Jesus do that plenty of times before for people he didn't even know. But Jesus purposely delayed. He claimed that Lazarus would not die, but in him God's glory would be displayed. And Jesus waited two more days before making his way to Bethany. Our story picks up at verse 17 in chapter 11 in the Gospel of John. Listen now for the word of God. When Jesus arrived, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. When she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary and told her privately, the teacher is here and calling for you. And when she heard it, she got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come to the village but was still at the place where Martha had met him. The Jews who were with her in the house consoling her saw Mary get up quickly and go out. They followed her because they thought she was going to the tomb to weep there. When Mary came where Jesus was and saw him, she knelt at his feet and said to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was greatly disturbed in spirit and deeply moved. He said, Where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus began to weep. And so the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? And then Jesus, again greatly disturbed, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone was lying against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, already there is a stench because he has been dead four days. The dead man came out with hands and feet bound with strips of cloth and his face wrapped in a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please pray with me. Gracious God, your love knows no bounds, not even death. Meet us here in this word and speak to us what we need to hear. In and through this, your holy word, shape us into the people you dreamt of at creation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we're going to walk through the story again briefly, and as we do, I invite you to pay special attention to Martha's experience. So in the Gospels, we're first introduced to Martha in the Gospel of Luke in a fairly well-known story of bickering sisters. In that story, Jesus was teaching, and Mary was sitting at his feet, listening and learning from him. And Martha came up to Jesus and complained that Mary had left her to do all the work by herself. Jesus challenged Martha to listen first and serve others second, like Mary was doing. Jesus knew that being connected to him and not a sense of obligation would be better for Martha and to prevent this buildup of resentment. And now later in this story, it seems as if Martha had been changed by that initial encounter with Jesus. In this story, we see a woman who trusted in Jesus' ability to heal, a woman who trusted that Jesus loved her and her siblings. After all, she had sent messengers to Jesus, trusting that Jesus would come right away to help. But the days passed, and Jesus did not arrive. Now, today, when someone you love is delayed on the way to meet you and you don't hear from them for a while, you're pretty confident at first that there's like, just traffic or some minor hiccup. But the longer the wait, the larger the worry looms. Did something happen to them? And then if it turns out that they are okay, but they're just very, very, very late, that can turn into deep disappointment and hurt. So all of this trust and doubt and hurt that Martha was feeling showed up powerfully in what she said to Jesus. Lord, if you had been here, If you have ever experienced profound loss or disappointment, those words resonate. Lord, if you had been here, I trust in your power, I trust in your love, but it didn't feel like you were here. You weren't here. You were absent when I needed you. So even though Martha says that, though, she she swung back to a place of trust right away. She said, but even now I know that God will give you whatever you ask of him. She's been a little passive-aggressive here, but her implied question is, you can do something about this, right? Even now? And Jesus' response was fairly disappointing. He said, your brother will rise again. It's kind of like telling someone who's grieving a sudden loss that heaven just needed another angel. It doesn't do anything for the pain of that present moment. And so Martha responded to Jesus' words with a common Jewish theological view of the time, that on the last day, on Judgment Day, all of God's people, throughout all of time, would be resurrected from the dead. Perhaps her tone was one of resignation. Perhaps she felt scolded for hoping for a miracle. We don't know. Whatever Martha was feeling, she was not expecting the thing that Jesus said next. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Those who believe in me, even though they die, will live, and everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? In those two sentences, Jesus was making a significant theological claim that the future and the present were linked. Yes, there would be an eventual resurrection, but Jesus in his very person held eternal life and offer that new life to all people, right then. And over the centuries, Christians have tended to focus on just getting into heaven, as if this earthly life is forsaken and broken beyond repair. And there's some truth to that. But throughout all of the Gospels, Jesus preached and lived a message that said, what will be is also happening now. Salvation is not just for some far-off day. Salvation affects your present day, your day-to-day life, right now. Now, before we revisit Martha's confession of faith, I want to pause just a moment and remind us of the nuance of the word belief. On this side of the Enlightenment, belief, even in some communities of faith, is talked about as if it's primarily an intellectual decision. You read all the stories, you look at the evidence, and you decide whether or not you believe something is true. A set of beliefs tend to be a list of assertions that we evaluate and agree or disagree with. But as we've talked several times here in sermons that the word for believe in Greek is the word pistis, which more accurately translated means to trust. And when looking at this passage, I found it to be a really interesting thought exercise wherever we see the word believe to mentally insert trust and see how that changes the tone. There is something about those who believe in me that feels different than those who trust me. Believing in Jesus has come to mean agreeing that Jesus existed and rose from the dead. It is a bit easier for us to remain emotionally distant from our beliefs. But trusting a a person? Who do you trust? that is far more vulnerable. When you trust someone, you open yourself up to the possibility that they will disappoint you. So Jesus made that wild claim that he himself embodied resurrection, that it was both something that would happen in the future and something taking place right in front of Martha's eyes. And what was Martha's response? Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, the one coming into the world. In other words, yes, Lord, I trust you. I trust that you can bring new life here and now. So at first, to Martha, it seemed as if Jesus was not going to raise Lazarus when they spoke of this resurrection on the last day. But then Jesus made this bold claim about being the resurrection and the life himself. And her response was a confession, a statement of faith. So perhaps not all hope was lost. Perhaps he would be able to save Lazarus somehow. So Martha hurried home to Mary, invited her to come talk to Jesus. Perhaps Martha wanted to share some of that hope with her. Mary approached Jesus and said the same words that Martha did. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. A statement of faith in Jesus' power, but also a statement of profound disappointment. And the grief of the two sisters moved Jesus to tears. He began to weep. Now, at this point in the story, I wonder if Martha began to doubt again. If Jesus was weeping, if he was sad about what's going on right now, then perhaps Lazarus' death was permanent. Maybe that whole theological exchange did not mean what she hoped it meant. Jesus asked to approach the tomb. Perhaps he was just going there as an act of solidarity to grieve with them. But then he asked to have the stone rolled away. And there we see even more of Martha's doubt of Jesus' intention to raise Lazarus when she reminds him that Lazarus had been dead for four days and there would be a stench. Which is just such a weird detail. Martha, it's going to be, Jesus is going to be stinky. It's weird. Let's not do that. She's worried about that, and Jesus responded to her with Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? Basically, I told you something amazing would happen. Trust me. So they rolled away the stone. Jesus prayed aloud to God, and then he called Lazarus by name. Lazarus, hearing his Savior call him by name, emerged from the tomb, somehow miraculously alive, still wearing his grave clothes. Jesus commanded those nearby to unbind Lazarus and let him go. We don't really hear from Martha again. The only other time we see her in this gospel is helping to serve a meal. Now, this story is quite the emotional roller coaster for all involved. And what's so interesting to me about Martha's experience in this encounter is that it's not a linear one. It's a spiral experience. Because first, Martha believed. She had faith. She trusted that Jesus would come and heal Lazarus quickly. But then, after Lazarus died and Jesus showed up after the fact, her trust and her doubt were bound up together. When Jesus and Martha spoke of a resurrection happening on the last day, there was more doubt about whether or not Jesus would raise Lazarus. But then, with this, I am the resurrection, there's more hope and trust again. But then Jesus wept. So we're doubting, we're doubting, we're trusting, we're trusting, we're doubting. Over and over and over. So often in our life of faith, we think that saying the sinner's prayer or agreeing with the claim that Jesus was raised from the dead will unlock some kind of miraculous solution to all that pains us. That way of thinking can go so deep that we don't even see it in ourselves. But whenever we experience loss or pain or heartbreak, whenever a dream seems to get pulled out of reach or shattered, We doubt God's love for us. It is the age-old question, how could a good God allow bad things to happen to us? How do I have faith in the face of hardship? And in some ways, the intricacies of free will or fate, the debate about God as a distant being, watching us all enact chaos on each other, or a God who plays chess and helps us get the right parking spot, all of that can actually distract us from the very basic reality that we see so clearly in Martha's experience, an author once wrote that growth is a spiral process. You come back around to the same wounds, the same thoughts, the same memories, but you're different. And I would argue that growing in one's faith and trusting Jesus is also a spiral process. We come back around to ideas and sorrows and joys. We experience them with new insights. We continue to learn and practice our faith together. Let me put it another way. You're going to doubt God's love for you. You're going to feel like God is absent. It's actually really normal. It's to be expected. It's part of the process. Is it pleasant? Or desirable, of course not. And other times you are going to trust. You're going to trust in God's love for you so deeply that you'll be able to reassure someone else. You'll be able to love someone beyond what you thought was possible. You will see little resurrections springing up here and there. You will feel more whole, more like yourself than you ever have before. It's part of the process. And then you'll doubt again. You'll feel alone. And then you'll trust again, and you'll feel God's presence close by. Living out our faith is not just about an outcome. It's about now. It's about what's happening right now. It's moving through this spiral of trust and doubt, trust and doubt. Doubting God's love for you, God's power, God's grace, God's new life, it doesn't make you a failure of a Christian (laughs) It places you right alongside Mary and Martha, Peter and Thomas, countless other believers throughout the centuries who doubted and trusted over and over again. It's a process in which we can trust. Which leads us to the title of this sermon, Trust the Process. Now, if you are a Philly sports fan or an NBA fan, or even have just lived in the area for the last decade or so, the phrase, trust the process, probably rings a bell for you. I will confess to you that I enjoy sports as a social event. And the complexities of rules and player negotiations and strategies are far beyond my comprehension. (laughs) But in trying to sort out the title of this sermon, I found myself absorbed in the story behind the phrase, trust the process, and the way it actually speaks to this story. So we're gonna get into that for just a minute because I think it's a helpful example. So about a decade ago, the Philadelphia 76ers, our city's NBA basketball team, was not doing that well. Their new general manager, Sam Hinkie, decided to pursue a fairly unconventional strategy in hopes of improving the team on the long term and their chances of winning games. He didn't quite encourage the players to intentionally lose, but he didn't push them hard for wins either. He was willing to endure several losses in the short term in order to reach a long-term goal. And on the surface, this doesn't really make a lot of sense. If you want to win games, you, you try to win games. <laughs> That's what you do to get there. But that strategy got them to their goal in some interesting ways. And it had interesting effects on the team itself and the fans. Now the strategy was related to how the team brought on new players, and I'm getting into territory here that if you know more than me, <laughs> give me some grace and correct me during coffee hour. <laughs> and it also took the pressure off of existing players. It coined the phrase, trust the process. And it was this um, widespread faith, this widespread choice to trust in Hinkey's judgment and strategy that changed a lot of things. So the strategy was related to how they brought on new players. In the draft system at the time, I know now it's not the same anymore, the worst teams were given a better chance at a lottery for a better player. That is, they were given the best chance to bring on a very good player. And the Sixers were just good enough to miss out on that lottery, but not good enough to appeal to good players on their own. So they're kind of stuck in this middle, in this loop. And the strategy, it worked. Over time, they brought on better players. And this phrase, trust the process, became bigger than just this team. Even if it didn't make sense in the moment, even if it led to disappointment, people were willing to be on board with this. And what I find even more fascinating is the language of faith that sports fans began to employ when talking about this. T-shirts were made with trust the process on them and in Hinky we trust. And even Hinkie died for our sins. <laughs> now, that's blasphemous, but. <laughs> and even though Sam Hinkie left the team after just three years, this philosophy has become so ingrained both in Philadelphia sports culture and even basketball culture at large. So why? Why do people latch on to trust the process, especially when the progress was so slow? And why did they also say, in Hinky we trust? There must have been something about Sam Hinkey himself that invited that kind of trust. Now, I don't know anything about his personality, whether he was kind or brash or both. But what we do know is that Hinkey had faith himself that the strategy would work. Whether or not he personally doubted that on his own time, but whenever he was relating to the team or the public, he was steadfast. He was committed. He himself trusted the process. Now, we may look at the story of raising Lazarus and want to have the kind of trust in Jesus that says, Yes, Lord, I believe you are the Messiah. You have the power to bring new life. You may look at this story and want to trust Jesus to bring you new life, to call you by name out of whatever death or struggle you are in. The goal, the outcome of following Jesus is clear. Trusting him more and more, trusting that even if we are filled with doubts today, God is still faithful, God is still with us. But how? It's not something you can muster up by yourself. It's not forcing yourself to acknowledge an intellectual doctrine. Trust in Jesus. It is a gift from God. It's a gift that's offered to all people, and all we have to do is respond. All we have to do is accept it. So, when you're filled with doubts and questions, when you are wondering where God was when some awful thing happened, when trusting in the process of trust, doubt, trust seems absurd, look at how Jesus acted in this story. From the get go, Jesus trusted in the whole process. Upon hearing about his illness, he said, This illness does not lead to death, rather, it is for God's glory. With Martha, he asserted the outcome again there would be a miracle. When they get to the tomb and Martha is worried, Jesus says, Did I not tell you? The trust that Jesus had, that God had given him the power to do such a thing, that trust did not waver. That's one thing to trust the process, to be comforted by the idea of our cyclical nature of growth. But the only way that we can trust the process is by accepting the gift of faith from the person who holds the process. The person whose trust in the process is always constant. You can't muster up the ability to do this by yourself. And that's actually really good news. You can't do it. But Jesus can. Jesus did. Jesus does every day, every hour. Jesus offers you that gift. Jesus says to you, I know sometimes it's really hard to trust. I have enough faith for both of us. Here, have some of mine. What a gift. Thanks be to God. Amen.